My name is John Cullen, and I want to tell you a story. It's a story about a scandal, broken relationships, gossip, rumors, money, corporate rivalry, and curling. It's the story of Broomgate, how a single broom, yes, a broom, turned friends into foes and almost killed the 500-year-old sport of curling. It was a year I'd like to forget. Broomgate, available now. You're listening to a Frequency Podcast Network production. It happened without me even realizing it. In fact, it happened to me while I was criticizing other people for doing it. See, over the past couple of years, I have attempted to make the internet work better for me. Though, as you will see, there's another term for that. I block unpleasant people liberally on social media. I have moved further towards subscribing to newsletters to get information rather than just browsing the internet. I have followed subjects and topics I enjoy spending time with. And I have muted all posts with words and phrases that annoy or offend me. And of course, I also spend time on TikTok, which basically does all that stuff I just mentioned for me, algorithmically. So my online life is now much more pleasant, and yes, as you've guessed, largely without any dissenting points of view. I created my own echo chamber. Now, I think my echo chamber is a good one. The sources in it are reliable, the reporters are trustworthy, but it definitely is an echo chamber. And every now and then, I am sure that I miss something, that I'd understand better if I were open to hearing it. And I have probably been misled by mis- or disinformation. And guess what? So have you. How am I so sure? Well, you're about to meet the man who literally wrote the book on how misinformation spreads like a virus and how we can inoculate ourselves against it. But he falls for it, too. So none of us are safe. Our echo chambers, no matter how good they are, don't help. And exposure is inevitable. So what do we do? We vaccinate ourselves. Using a little bit of the virus that's all around us. And then we vaccinate our loved ones. Here's how. I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. This is The Big Story. Dr. Sander van der Linden is a professor of social psychology and society and director of the Cambridge Social Decision-Making Lab at the University of Cambridge. He's also the author of Foolproof, Why Misinformation Infects Our Minds and How to Build Immunity. Hey, Sander. Hey, Jordan. Pleasure to be on the show. Well, thank you so much for joining us. And I'm hoping we can dispel a few myths and offer some practical advice. I found your book helpful, though, uh, like so many books on disinformation, a little disquieting. <laughs> well, let's get into it. So why don't you start by telling me about this game you built? It's called Bad News. Why did you build it? What did that teach you? Because I feel like after reading your book that this is kind of the, the core of the project. Yeah, so Bad News is a kind of a fully-fledged social media simulation that allows people to sort of experience the, the worst of, of the internet and, in fact, uh, actively participate in it. And Bad News is a, is a pun. It's supposed to show people kind of in, in simulated weekend form how 
online manipulators can take advantage of us by spreading disinformation and drilling down in some of the techniques that they use to do people that not everyone might be familiar with. And the thing with the game is that, you know, we started out doing lab research and, you know, getting people to the lab and having them read something or, you know, in in an experimental setup. And we just thought like, well, if we're going to produce some practical research on misinformation and how to help people spot it, this isn't really going to do it. I mean, nobody's going to be interested in it. So what can we do to make it fun, to make it interesting, to, you know, so it doesn't feel like you're listening to some boring media literacy lecture? And that's really how we came up with the idea of, uh, of the game, uh, which was meant to challenge people, it's meant to be kind of sarcastic and funny um, and allow people on their own terms to come to grip with, with some of these, uh, as I call them, you know, the dark arts of manipulation in really a, a simulated sort of setting. And for research purposes, I mean, I'm not sure, you know, how much people care about this, but for us, for research purposes, it was also an important development because a lot of the testing that we do can't really take place in realistic settings or highly realistic settings because, you know, we don't own social media companies. We were not able to actually run experiments usually on their platforms. And so we thought, let's build one of our own. And we'll return to bad news in a little while and definitely get into those dark arts. But first, right in the intro to the book, you write that at a basic cognitive level, we are all susceptible to misinformation. And I just have to ask, how serious are you about that? Even me, even people who are extremely, and listen, I'm not trying to brag or anything. I am extremely online. Uh, I've been a journalist for 20 years. You have a bunch of quizzes in the books, and I ace them all. <laughs> and I find it- That's good to hear. Yeah, I find it difficult. I'm really not trying to brag. I find it difficult to think that I am susceptible to this stuff. And I imagine a lot of people who- are very well-versed in social media technology and news media especially, would feel the same way about themselves? Yeah, it's it's a great question. You know, I gave my wife the uh, test that's in the end of the book. Uh, she scored like in the 98th percentile or something. So it was, uh, she did better than me and I, I came up with it. So I was, I was, I was impressed. But, it, you know, when I was writing the book, the editors asked me, like, is it, is it really the case that you're fully immune to it because you're an expert? And I said, no, I mean, not not really. I mean, there have been instances where, where I've been duped just because, you know, our brains have limited capacity to process information. We're all under pressure. We see we're overloaded with information. We rely on simple rules of thumb that are not always accurate. And so it is possible even for experts to get tricked and, and duped. And I give one kind of example in the book where you know, I think it was about the NASA kind of Mars rover landing and Stephen King retweeted something. And, you know, uh, here I go trusting Stephen King to, to tweet, maybe, you know, to tweet reliable content. So I retweeted it. It turned out it was a, it was a, it was a, it was kind of a fake video with fake Martian winds. And it, it was, it was realistic because it was pasted together from real landings, but it wasn't the one that was actually about to happen. The thing is that they were able to dupe me because my brain was expecting to see something. So we'd heard that there'd be an announcement of the um, of the rover landing on Mars that month. I just forgot the exact date. And so when I, when I saw it online, I just connected the dots. My brain just connected the dots and said, well, you were expecting to hear something about Mars. Here's a video. This must be it. But I think the, the moral of the story is that we can't be scrutinizing every piece of, of information at that level of detail, you know, everything that's coming at us, right? And so manipulators can take advantage of that and exploit us. And there are certain biases that are common to everyone, no matter how smart you are. Um, and so one example is what we call illusory truth. 
And illusory truth is really the phenomena that the more often you repeat something, the more likely your brain is to think it's true because the brain uses a concept called fluency um, as an indicator for truth. And fluency has to do with the ease with which a piece of information is processed. And the more often you hear it, the more familiar it becomes and the easier it is to process for your brain. And so that happens automatically. So if I keep telling you something that's false, and you see this in experiments all the time, I mean, even stuff that people have knowledge about that they know isn't true, just the sheer fact of repeating it leads people to give it a higher truth rating. I mean, they might not you know, completely believe it, but they're still more likely to believe it than if they um, hadn't heard it uh, repeatedly. Um, and so that's really something that's, you know, those kinds of biases are really difficult to overcome because there's, they're automatic and everyone is susceptible to it. Um, and that's why, why good liars and manipulators repeat stuff. Mm-hmm. And there's a host of related sort of effects. So the more often you repeat something, the less morally questionable people think it is over time. So if you start out with something outrageous, but then you keep repeating it, we find, what you find in experiments is that people find it less morally objectionable the 10th time they hear, they, they've heard it because now it's starting to seem pretty familiar and you know you hear it over and over again, so maybe it's not that crazy after all. And this is why we talk about platforming extremists, right? Because those ideas repeated over and over again. Absolutely. And people, you know, people have complex feelings about deplatforming. And um, I, I, I completely get that. I mean, you know, freedom of speech and everything. But what the research shows, though, and this is just, these are just facts, is that if you deplatform what we call super spreaders, so people who continuously are just basically a fire hose of disinformation, when you deplatform them, it's effective in terms of reducing the amount of disinformation on the platform. I don't think it's a, to use the title of my book, a foolproof measure, because what you see is that they then jump to other social platforms um, and become even more insular and their audience can become more extreme. You know, when Trump got booted from Twitter, he started Truth Social and now he runs his own unmoderated uh, network. And so there's there's these you know side effects that you'd have to consider when uh, it comes to deplatforming, but it, it does work on some level. I'm glad you used the term firehose and that you pointed out the NASA example because we can't possibly check and debunk everything. And when you're seeing everything um, from politicians, tweets to research and space news and everything, it can feel like you're just getting slammed with it every moment of the day, at least that you're online. Do we have a real sense of the state of disinformation and misinformation right now? Like, can you give me a sense of the scale of it? How bad is it right now? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, in the book, I spent quite some time talking about, you know, history and context. I mean, if you want to be a a devil's advocate, you can say, well, what historical period are you comparing it against? Right. You know, when we were lynching witches in, uh, you know, during, during the Middle Ages or when we were putting Jews in gas chambers during World War II? Like, what's the, what's the benchmark? And I think that makes the question really complex. And I try to, you know, give some nuance to it. But I think if, if, if the benchmark, which I think when people ask me this question, I think most of us are thinking the last few decades. We're not thinking about World War II. We're not thinking about other, you know, horrible periods in, in history. We're thinking about, you know, the last few decades. Then I think things are, are, are pretty bad comparatively. I mean, let's talk about Canada. Mm-hmm. You know, think about the truckers' protests, Ottawa. You know, you have a group of people um, who, were, who were actually quite separate. So you had anti-vax groups, then you had neo-Nazis, and then you had anti-government protesters. They were able to coordinate and, con- and, and connect and basically take over uh, a whole city. 
And, uh, you know, that's one thing. Of course, capital riots in the U.S., you can see how that can escalate and, and undermine democracy based on the, the false notion that the election was fraudulent and that it was stolen, a narrative that was repeated over and over again. Um, a new report came out from the Canadian Academies recently that estimated that misinformation resulted during the pandemic in approximately 3,000 unnecessary deaths when it came to COVID-19 and in excess of $300 million that needed to be spent on, on hospital care that could have been prevented if people hadn't been duped by, by misinformation. And so I think in terms of public health, in terms of you know, trust in, in democracy, uh, in terms of violence that we're seeing in, uh, as, as it relates to extremism, things are pretty bad right now, even if you can come up with some historical examples that were you know, obviously very bad. I think on the scale of things, things are not good at the moment. So before we get to what we can do about that, maybe you can explain a little bit about how misinformation can spread like a virus, because we are going to talk about vaccination. Yeah, absolutely. And it's interesting because, you know, people, some people who, who read the book, and I would, I would stress this, is that it's not uh, a loose analogy that I use. It's not kind of a popular thing of like, okay, well, you know, we're in the pandemic age, and so everything is kind of a virus. That's that's really not the case. So if you uh, study this, if you study what we call information pathogens, you can actually directly use models from public health. And some of these are called the susceptible infected recovered models, which were used during uh, COVID and other, and other uh, outbreaks. You can, you can actually use those public health, you know, computational models and apply them directly to the spread of, of information in social networks. And then you can actually see that information does spread very much uh, like a virus. Mm -hmm. And you can even calculate it's R naught or the, um, you know, the amount of other people somebody goes on to infect once they've been exposed to, to a falsehood. And so the analogy is actually quite literal in terms of how misinformation spreads like a virus. And I should say, I mean, not all kinds of information spread like a virus. So the the public health model is, is what we call simple contagion. So you're exposed to a piece of misinformation that's false. Then you become infected in the model and you go on to spread it to X number of other people, depending on the structure of a particular kind of, of social network. They're all, they're all a little bit different. Complex contagions are a bit more difficult. So, so when it comes to information, unlike certain diseases, you need a bit more. So you, you might need to be exposed multiple times uh, by people that you know well in order to, quote unquote, become infected. But that can be, you know, those parameters can be adjusted in the models to account for that. So I think all considered, uh, that's basically how we look at the spread of, of, of information and how we know that we can actually use the viral analogy quite, quite literally. If the viral analogy is literal, how literal is inoculation? And when you talk about that in this context, what do you mean? Yeah, so in the book, I make the case for the this theory of psychological inoculation, um, and it really follows the biomedical analogy exactly in terms of the theory, at least, right? And so the theory is that just as you expose people to a weakened or inactivated strain of a virus to trigger the production of antibodies to help confer resistance against future infection, it really turns out that you can do the same with information and that it works the same way for the human mind. So by preemptively exposing people to a weakened dose of disinformation and by refuting it in advance, this is the crucial part. Sometimes people repeat this and say, expose people to a weakened dose of disinformation, but that's only half the story. You actually have to refute it uh, in advance so that people can build up resistance or mental antibodies. And 
become immune to, to similar disinformation um, that they might come across in the future. And just as with your biological immune system, right, the more copies your immune system has of potential invaders, the more effective it can mount an immune response. And, and really, it works the same with the human mind. The more copies, the more microdoses you can give people of the types of disinformation that are out there and how people can spot it and refute it, the more people are able to actually resist and neutralize it. And that's why I think it's so important to train people's psychological immune system. And of course, you know, in the research that we've done, and there's all kinds of ways that you can extend this metaphor, and sometimes it doesn't behave like the bio- biological analogy exactly. So for example, you know, if you get three booster shots for certain vaccines, you might be immune for life. I mean, right. it would be great if it worked the same way for the human mind. But unfortunately, the mind is complex and we're distracted by lots of things, right? Politics, uh, social environments. There, there's so many things that can interfere with why people believe the things they do, that there is this, you know, natural kind of uh, wearing off of the vaccine that you need to continually kind of boost over time. So I'm not suggesting that people can easily attain lifelong immunity against disinformation, but a lot of the things work in the same way. And, and, and what we show experimentally and in our research is that it's, that it's quite promising. In 2007, TV network CBS dropped 40 kids in the middle of the New Mexico desert as part of a brand new reality show. These kids would have to build their own society from scratch. And if this sounds like Lord of the Flies to you, well, it was meant to. We were on this mission together, and we were going to prove to the world that we could make a better society than adults could. I'm Josh Gwynn, and I want to know what this wild TV experiment was really about. Split Screen, Kid Nation, a six-part podcast from CBC. Available now. How can you approach that with somebody who, uh, and this is where I said we'd get to the practical part of the advice, somebody who was dear to you but has been a victim of misinformation and disinformation. I think lots of people listening have that in their lives. Your work does seem to point out that the typical stuff we might do, such as argue with them, show them evidence, et cetera, et cetera, can only back them into a corner and make it worse. So how do you, and you use the term pre-bunking, how would you, how would you prime a person like that for inoculation, I guess? Yeah, so I use that term because it's easier to distinguish it from debunking and also because, you know, psychological inoculation is a bit of a medical term. So, so people who don't like medical terms might prefer the term pre-bunking. It's also not great when you sit your older relative down and say, I'm going to psychologically inoculate you right now. Uh, <laughs> yeah. It's an awkward way to start <laughs> exactly. a conversation. Exactly. Um, and so pre-bunking is a bit more of a, of a gentle term and can intrigue people in terms of, oh, what, what is that? Um, and so um, I think the, the, the first thing, and this is, um, you know, we've done a lot of research with uh, international organizations, social media companies, and uh, producing the games and videos and ways you can scale this across millions of people. But I think the benefit of, for regular people is actually that you have the, the power of conversation to, to find out more. So I think the first thing that you need to do, which is really hard to do on the internet when we launch these interventions. So, you know, when we do this on, on Facebook or YouTube, well, A, a lot of these social media companies claim that they can't give us real-time information about, quote-unquote, people's infection status in terms of how, how often they've been exposed to misinformation and when and how. Mm-hmm. I mean, maybe they have this data, but, you know, they don't want to to look into it or for privacy reasons. And there might well be good 
reasons for that. But when you have a conversation with people, you actually have the power to find out their infection status. And I think that's that's the most important thing. So you want to find out, am I coming into this conversation in a purely prophylactic sense, which is the ideal scenario for inoculation? Someone who hasn't uh, come across the misinformation yet uh, or who hasn't been duped yet, and now you're going to inoculate or pre-bunk it, really, that's really the ideal thing. Or is this somebody who's already been exposed a few times and is starting to think about it? They're a bit on the fence, but they haven't been completely convinced yet. This is where what I call therapeutic inoculation is also still a good option. Or are you talking to somebody who has already been radicalized, somebody who deeply believes in conspiracy theories, who's already down the rabbit hole? You know, you're not going to get much traction there with, with inoculation, very likely. And so what you need there is more of a de-radicalization strategy, which is going to be a little bit different. Mm-hmm. And so in the book, I, I focus more on the people we can save and the power of protecting everyone else. And this is kind of interesting, though, because when you talk about family get-togethers, it's often not that you need to convince your crazy uncle of something else. You need to vaccinate the rest of your family against what he's about to say. And that's kind of, I think, sometimes the strategic focus that uh, that people get confused about, that everyone asks, how can I convert my crazy uncle? Uh, but that's that's not going to be easy. What's going to be easier is to protect everyone by pre-bunking it. And the thing is that what I talk about in this book is that the people who are spreading conspiracies or are duped by these things, they have tropes and narratives that go back to the 18th century. People keep repeating the, the same tropes over and over again, and they're predictable. Um, and so you can actually anticipate them and and warn people in advance. And so to, to get concrete, I mean, what how do you do this in a conversation? So the first thing you, you do after you find out people's status, more or less, is that you warn them in advance that there are manipulators out there who are trying to do people. And this is really important to activate people's psychological immune system because most of the time it's sleeping. Uh, it gets activate it gets activated when we perceive that somebody's trying to manipulate us. Nobody likes to be manipulated. And so that kind of puts the brain in a heightened state of, of awareness. And so you want to tell people that, look, there's actors out there trying to dupe and manipulate us. They're trying to make money off of conspiracy theories. They're duping people. Um, and it's really important that we, you know, that we tackle these things. But then you need to also give people the tools to actually uh, identify it. Um, and that's why you want to give people the, the weakened dose and refute something in advance. And I think if you're asking me, if you're talking to people who've already been exposed or are already a bit kind of believers, you want to take what I call the technique level inoculation approach, which is a bit more gentle and a bit more indirect. So rather than getting very bogged down in in specific facts, uh, you want to do something much more general. And so let me, I'm happy to give you a practical sort of example. Please. Yeah. So one of the strategies that uh, extremists often use on YouTube, on in misinformation and elsewhere is... Um, something called a false dilemma or a false dichotomy. I mean, it's used all the time and by politicians too. An example would be like, oh, you know, we first need to address homelessness uh, in Canada before we can think about immigrants. Or either you join ISIS or you're not a good Muslim, right? And so the goal of a false dilemma is to present as if there's only two options, while in fact there's many more. And it's, it's, the idea is to get lost, to get rid of moderation, to get, get rid of nuance. So you're forcing people into extremes. And for a lot of people, that sounds pretty convincing. The first time they hear it, I was like, oh, yeah, you know, we have these two things and this is what we need to prioritize. But if you think about it more, it's actually a technique that people use to, uh, to get you to be more extreme. And so what you want to do then is not talk about hot button issues. You don't want to go into the, the, the immigration, climate change, vaccinations. 
Instead, you want to pivot to, to what I call the sort of technique level, unveiling the techniques of disinformation. And so you're going to say, look, the people out there trying to manipulate us, they use techniques like, like a false dilemma. And the way we do this in research is that the weakened dose is something very innocuous. And so I, you know, I tell my folks uh, uh, that I, you know, whom I know grew up with, with Star Wars, I'll, I'll say like, well, remember the scene where Obi-Wan Kenobi is talking to Anakin Skywalker and he sort of says, either you're with me or you're my enemy. And then Obi-Wan says, only a Sith deals in, in absolutes. Hmm. Um, you know, we don't want to be dealing in false dilemmas. And, and most people will agree to that and say, yes, that's true. Mm-hmm. And then you can gently go from there into more specific issues and say like, okay, well, how, could, how is this applied in, in the context of, of vaccines or immigration? Can you spot the patterns? Can you see how this is repeated? Like, I'm not saying that you need to get vaccinated. I'm not saying that you need to support immigration policy. I'm just you know, saying that we can all now spot this technique in, in different contexts. And I personally find that most people are comfortable getting on board with uh, when you abstract it like that instead of pushing them on specific hot button issues. I want to specifically ask you about echo chambers, um, which is something you talk about in your book. It's something that everybody uh, who works in this field, I think, talks about to one degree or another. And it struck me as I was reading your stuff, I don't know if there's anywhere in my life that I exist outside of an echo chamber anymore. You know, I curate my own experience on every social platform I'm on, uh, in every streaming service that I'm on. I mean, I choose the guests and the topics for this show. Like, it is rare. And, you know, I'd like to think of myself as somebody who's open to all opinion and who seeks out the facts and all that stuff. But it is rare that I am actively encountering something that disagrees with my worldview. And what do we know about the effect that has on people? Yeah, I mean, that's that's a great way of, of describing it. I mean, basically, the core idea is that if everyone lives in their own personalized form of democracy, where you're self-selecting the viewpoints that you're exposed to, the theory is that then, and, and also what experiments show, is then people become more convinced of the beliefs that are being reinforced in their own echo chamber. And if that happens to, let's say, two camps at the same time, then what you see is they're drifting further and further apart. In, in you think of it as a network structure and you have two bubbles, they're becoming more and more disconnected because over time they're digging in deeper into their own echo chamber and the reinforcement is getting stronger. Their beliefs are getting extremer and they're drifting further apart. So what you see is, is effectively polarization. And when we talk about these vaccination uh, techniques or inoculation techniques, and I'm not going to get you to go through all of them, the thing that kept crossing my mind and why I brought up echo chambers is how do you either get inside there to inoculate somebody or bring somebody outside of it in order to provide any kind of accurate information or inoculation? Because to your point earlier, you know, when you're continually getting reinforced inside these little ecosystems, it can feel like a tiny dose is just like totally insufficient. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I think it's a real, I mean, when, when you know, some people have reviewed the book, they, they talk about, you know, phenylalanine and stuff's encouraging, but then echo chambers bums me out because how how we're going to get people out, even if we want to inoculate them. And I, I think there there's... Uh, it feels like people have to be a little bit willing to discuss it in good faith in order for the inoculation to work. And, and that's not what I've seen in the echo chambers. And that's why I mention it. And I think this is a valid point. I mean, I think I, I, think I, I completely agree with this. Um, and so we've developed some strategies to try to get at this. I mean, the game, bad news, in many ways, 
was an attempt to make people aware of their own echo chamber because what you do in the game is you kind of create, you curate your own echo chamber and your own filter bubble uh, in some of our games. And we show people how that works. We even show this technique called false amplification, which is buying a huge amount of bots to amplify a narrative so that you kind of only see uh, one side of it. And so our hope was that that actually leads people to reflect on the idea that they might be stuck in an echo chamber. I think people also need tools to, to be able to get out of the echo chamber. We, you know, we talk to social media companies all the time about transparency and letting people opt out. Um, we were in Instagram's head off, uh, headquarters in, in London a few weeks ago. Right. And we floated the idea of, uh, you know, a Netflix when you get that notification. I mean, I'm not sure if you do. Or maybe I'm revealing too much about myself. But what? do you want to do you want to stop? You've been watching for six hours straight. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Maybe you should stop. Exactly. Do you want to keep watching? And uh, I kind of appreciate that on some levels. Like, what are you saying, man? But 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 I feel like the internet and social media companies could. And Instagram actually thought this was interesting because you know some of the feedback they get is afterwards when people have gone down some rabbit hole and then they poll them about their experience. People don't like it. I think the traditional problem has been that social media companies take cues from people's behavior. And so they see people engaging. And so they infer, well, they must like it because they're spending all their time on it. But then when they actually ask people, it turns out people don't like it. So I think we need to get people out. But also um, there are certain techniques that you can deploy. Um, so one is called cognitive infiltration. It really talks about um, going inside an echo chamber and, and trying, to, you know, trying to get people out by uh, you know, posing as, a, as an, as an, as an in-group member and then uh, essentially trying to offer, a, you know, an alternative or additional perspective. Perhaps another less, you know, more ethical option is to use influencers. And so what we've been thinking with inoculation, this maybe gets to your question, is who's actually the, the right person to do this? And I think for a lot of communities who are in their own echo chamber, they need someone from within the echo chamber to deliver the inoculation. Otherwise, they're not going to think that it's credible or accepted. And and I spend a lot of my time talking to um, hmm. conspiracy theorists. They're not quite conspiracy theorists. They're, they're people who are distrustful, but not completely on board with conspiracy theories. And they kind of have one foot in that world and the other foot still in reality. And they, they're often congenial to the idea that manipulation techniques are used and that we need to make people aware of them. And 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 they seem to be willing to to spread that sort of stuff into the conspiracy echo chamber. Um, and so you need you need somebody with an in, you know. And we see that all the time during COVID. Religious leaders were important communicators for distributing the vaccine within within certain religious echo chambers, right? Arnold Schwarzenegger talking about climate change to Republicans in California. You need members of groups that can influence their base to uh, and and have them propagate quote unquote the vaccine. That's kind of what we're looking at now in terms of how you would actually penetrate the the echo chamber. So, I mean, people are going to say this sounds threatening, but you want to pick high value targets essentially who can uh, take it take it from there and continue to spread the message. Yeah, sounds threat. But you know, uh, to maybe to to rephrase that in social network terms, yeah, people who are highly connected within within the relevant network. Yeah, super spreaders. You just want to change what they're spreading. Exactly. And so, if we can target them to spread more reliable or accurate content, or you know, if people don't want to get into debates about what's accurate and what's not accurate, what they can do is just make people aware of the manipulation techniques that you know I talk about in the book, and then other people talk about. Because really, that's not a heavy lift for most people to say that I'm not telling you what to believe. Uh, here are just some like polarization, conspiracies, trolling people, using negative emotions like fear to influence people. We can all agree that those are 
that those are bad things. And so I think most people are willing to take that on board and 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 make people more aware of these techniques. And ultimately, I think that just empowers people to make up their own mind instead of telling people what they need to believe. And I think that's that's an easier way to go about it. Mm-hmm. Some people say, well, that's too indirect. But I think, you know, at the end of the day, it doesn't seem realistic to, to try to confront people and convince them of what you want them to believe. I think giving people the tools uh, to, to dismantle deception and manipulation and misinformation is more feasible in the long term. Sandra, thank you so much for this. Thank you for the book. It's got some very practical advice and wish you the best of luck. Thanks so much. Sander Vanderlinden, the author of Foolproof, Why Misinformation Infects Our Minds and How to Build Immunity. That was The Big Story. You can get more at thebigstorypodcast.ca. You can get more of us just sharing stuff and chatting on Twitter at thebigstoryfpn. And you can tell us more about you by writing to hello at thebigstorypodcast.ca. You can find this podcast absolutely everywhere. And as I so often do, I will say, if you like it and you have a friend who likes podcasts who may not have heard of us, the best thing you can do is tell them to check us out. Thanks for listening. I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. Have a great long weekend. We've got a little special treat for you on the Holiday Monday. I'm Laura Palmer, host of Island Crime. Season 6, Sweethearts, is the story of three teenage girls who were all murdered in Victoria, Canada, within about 12 months. So she was scared. Something out there scared her. You just created the playground where predators can really thrive. She was a 16-year-old girl. She was a sweetheart. Listen to Sweethearts at FrequencyPodcastNetwork.com or wherever you get podcasts. Find your frequency.